Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number five, Daniel chapter two. Well, we finished up uh, Daniel chapter one last time. And it gave us a historical overview of Daniel from the time that he and his three fellow exiles were first taken up to Babylon. Now, then it tells us about this overt attempt by the Babylonian authorities to strip Daniel and company of their Hebrew identities, giving them new Babylonian identities. In other words, assimilating them by using the four elements that make up the identity of a person, especially in those ancient times. And those elements were location, name, civil and religious education, and diet. The historical overview then continues by explaining that Daniel remained in the employ of the succession of kings of Babylon even on to the time when the Babylonian kingdom was conquered and it was taken over by the Persians and the Medes and he found himself in the employ of the royal court of Cyrus the Great king of Persia now because diet is a biblically important topic I ask you to recall that of the four elements of identity change imposed upon Daniel and the exiles, Daniel firmly pushed back against only one of those elements. And that was against adopting a Babylonian diet. And we should not think that a Hebrew diet was all that radically different from the cultural eating habits of the other Middle Eastern nations and cultures. Rather, kosher eating had some restrictions involving sources of meat, other cultures didn't, the use of leavening at certain times but not at others, prescribed ways that the food was to be grown, but the actual dietary differences centered primarily on the handling of the food, mostly of the meat. Now we discussed that the Torah deals with the issue of food in two different sets of laws. One set deals with what is permissible to eat versus what is not. That is the definition of what is food for Hebrews versus what food is not is established. And this definition isn't based on which items might or not uh, might or might not be reasonably edible and healthy for a human being. Rather, the list of what is permissible as food is pronounced by God with little explanation. No provable human rationale or logic behind it. The list mostly concerns itself with animal protein, meat. Certain birds, like chickens, can be food, but others can't, generally scavenger birds. Certain land animals, like cows and sheep, can be food, but others can't, like pigs and rabbits. Certain sea creatures, like fish, can be food, but others can't, like eels and lobsters and clams. Why? No explanation. It is simply God's sovereign decision. 
On the other hand, there is a completely separate set of laws concerning food, and other things, by the way, that explains what constitutes ritually clean versus ritually unclean. Thus, clean and unclean don't involve the defining of which edible items can be food. Rather, they speak about the proper handling of what is permissible for food. So the concept is that permissible food has to be properly handled or it can become ritually unclean and therefore it should not be eaten or it would ritually defile the person eating it. Now because over the centuries the Gentile dominated church has adopted a doctrine that says the law of Moses is dead and gone and nailed to the cross then it's assumed that dietary regulations are only for Jews. I dispute that notion. Because not only is the Hebrew Apostle Paul frequently misquoted and taken out of context in order to arrive at that conclusion, but Yeshua himself warned us not to ever think that the law would be abolished, set aside, or even altered on account of him. Recall, once again, Matthew 5, 17-19, the absolute center point, the fulcrum of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a ute or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Will the Torah, the law, pass away someday? Oh yes, it will. Yeshua says it will, most definitely. But when? When will the Torah, the law, pass away? Most of Christianity responds, well it already happened when Christ died on the cross and arose from his grave. But when did Christ say the law would pass away? Not until heaven and earth pass away. That's when he said the Torah would pass away. Heaven and earth certainly did not pass away upon Messiah's death or resurrection. And it still exists to this day, does it not? Therefore, according to him, whether you like it or not, so does the law of Moses still exist to this day. And woe, he says, to those who teach otherwise, who will have their status before God reduced to least. In any case, Daniel and his friends were given permission by their captors to eat a kosher diet of only vegetables. This was an experiment to see if they would remain healthy and not surprisingly, they did well. They thrived. Their glowing health was not because eating only vegetables is the best thing, but rather it was because of their faithfulness, their obedience that the Lord supernaturally gave them outstanding vitality. Thus the all-important fourth element of their identity change to Babylonians, diet, was short-circuited and their Hebrew identities were less threatened. 
Well, with that foundation established, Daniel chapter 2 now takes us from the realm of the historical to prophecy. And interestingly, the original language of this chapter was written uh, was written in. Uh, uh, let me change that. The original language that this chapter was written in changes from Hebrew that was in chapter one to Aramaic now in chapter two, and it's going to stay in Aramaic through chapter seven. Since from here forward in Daniel, it is prophecy that takes center stage. Let's discuss the general nature of biblical prophecy. How we're supposed to use it. What the intent of biblical prophecy is. Biblical prophecy is much too often characterized as seeing the future. And while it's true that prophecy is always about events future to when the words were being written, it's not about telling us at any level of detail what's going to happen. Rather, biblical prophecy is about providing us with a road map of what lays ahead in human history. It provides, if you would, a trajectory. That is, we are getting information about where we're departing from, where shall we arrive, and then a series of milestones are laid out for us that eventually brings us to a goal. However, the details of how we got there, what the circumstances were that happens along the way, what it looks like when we arrive, we're either not supplied or the details are very scant, A good illustration of how biblical prophecy works is to compare it to the trajectory of human development. That is, the stages that a human being goes through during a normal lifespan from birth to death. One doesn't have to be an academic or even literate to know the trajectory of human development because it's the same for all humans everywhere in any era, past or present. While the labels that we might use to describe these several milestones along the way of human development can be slightly different, here is a representative set that ought to sound familiar to you. We're born and begin life as infants. Next we develop into toddlers, then young children, then adolescents, then teenagers. The next step is young adults, then adults, then middle-aged, seniors, elderly, and finally death. By the time a person arrives at the developmental stage of a young child, they have some understanding that they will eventually become elderly. By the time a person arrives at the adult milestone, I'm afraid it's all too apparent (laughs) that eventually becoming elderly is certain, but we probably ought to make some plans to deal with it. Apart from death, There is no such thing as skipping a stage of human development or indefinitely staying at one we like. And yet, while we can look ahead with assurance that we will pass through each one of these discernible stages during our lives, we have no details about what's going to occur in between 
each of these inalterable milestones of our development. We can reasonably know some of the characteristic signs that tell us that we've graduated from one milestone to the next. But the myriad of details, the wide variation of circumstances of how we got there, it's only knowable in hindsight, never in foresight. Bible prophecy works similarly. In fact, Bible prophecy gives us the ability to look all the way to the end of human history. And God's Word even establishes milestones so that we can know when we've arrived at that next stage in the prophetic trajectory. Yet in looking ahead, we have almost no details at all. If we're not discerning, we can pass right by a prophetic milestone and never even notice it. Further, the scriptures don't give us any clear idea of what the landscape's going to look like along the road in between those prophetic milestones. But that sure hasn't kept folks from trying to create their own versions of it to fill in the blanks, has it? I suppose it's only human nature to want to know the, the, the future in detail. However, especially as believers, we ought to have learned by now that to attempt such a thing is fraught with danger. We've all been subjected to the predictions of an exact date for the rapture or the beginning of the tribulation or the end of the world and often from highly respected Christian leaders. Of course, those dates all come and go and hopefully the arrogance of those who think that they've been given some special knowledge of these kinds of things has been tamped down a little bit. The learned men from Yeshua's day, they knew from Bible prophecy that they were closing in on that prophetic milestone when the Messiah that God promised would finally arrive. But rather than be patient, have faith, wait and watch, they began to concoct doctrines. Doctrines that sought to describe the details of what had not yet happened. These doctrines usually revolved around their own personal agendas, their aspirations. They trusted their own intellects. They overlaid their own desires upon the shadows of unfulfilled prophecies. And we all know the results. 99% of the Jewish population who bought into these fanciful speculations at the insistence of their many religious authorities refused to accept the reality when Messiah finally did come. They rejected Jesus Christ because He didn't fit. He didn't fit that mental image. He didn't fit all those details that the religious leadership had created regarding Him or even His purpose. So as we go forward with Daniel, let us proceed with some respectful caution Today we can certainly know many details of what Daniel prophesied because much of it's already come to pass. But there are other parts of his prophecies that are yet to come or perhaps more correctly are incomplete 
beware of self-styled modern day prophets who want to give you exciting, colorful details of things yet to come. Those who believe that they can tell you things about the landscape on the way to the next milestone of biblical prophecy, things that the Bible doesn't reveal. If you succumb to this, you can easily find yourself eagerly waiting for a train that is assuredly going to come, but you may be standing at the wrong station. Let's turn to our Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1099. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar became so troubled by a series of dreams he couldn't sleep. So the king ordered the magicians and the exorcists, the sorcerers and the astrologers summoned to interpret the king's dreams to him. They came, they stood in his presence, and the king said to them, I had a dream which will keep troubling my spirit until I know what it means. And the astrologer spoke to the king in Aramaic. May the king live forever. Now tell your servants the dream and we'll interpret it. The king answered the astrologers, Here's what I've decided If you don't tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb. Your houses will be reduced to rubble. But if you do state the dream and its interpretation, I'll give you presents and rewards. Great honor. Just tell me the dream and its interpretation. A second time, they said... Well, let his majesty just tell his servants the dream and we'll interpret it. King replied, I see you're only trying to gain time. Because you see that I've decided that if you don't tell me the dream, there's only one sentence passed on all of you. So you've conspired to mislead me with lies and hope that time will change things. Now, tell me the dream. That will convince me that you can then Give me its correct interpretation. The astrologers answered the king, Your majesty, nobody in this world can do this. Never has a king, no matter how great and powerful, asked such a thing of any magician or exorcist or astrologer. The king's asking a difficult thing. Nobody but the gods could tell this to your majesty, and they don't live with mere mortals. At this the king flew into a rage. He ordered all the sages of Babylon put to death. But the decree was published that the sages, or rather, when the decree was published that the sages were to be slain, they sought Daniel and his companions in order to have them put to death. Then, choosing his words carefully, Daniel consulted Arioch, captain of the royal guard, who'd already gone out to kill the sages of Babel. And he said to Arioch, Since you are the king's official, let me ask, why has the king issued such a harsh harsh decree. And Aryok explained the matter to Daniel. And Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time to tell the king the interpretation. Daniel went home and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
his companions so that they could ask the God of heaven for mercy concerning this secret and thus save Daniel and his companions from dying along with all the other sages of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven in these words. Blessed be the name of God. From eternity past to eternity future, for wisdom and power are His alone. He brings the changes of season and times. He installs and deposes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those with discernment. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells with Him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for giving me wisdom and power and revealing to me what we wanted from you for giving us the answer for the king. So Daniel went in to see Ariok, whom the king had charged with destroying the sages of Babel, and said to him, Don't destroy the sages of Babel. Bring me before the king, and I'll give the king the interpretation. And quickly Ariok brought Daniel before the king and told him, I've found one of the exiles of Judah who will reveal the interpretation to his majesty. And the king said to Daniel, who had been renamed Belteshazzar, Can you tell me what I dreamt and what it means? And Daniel answered the king, No sage, exorcist, magician, or astrologer can tell his majesty the secret he's asked about, but there is a God in heaven who unlocks mysteries. And he has revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the Ahret Yamim the end of days. Here are your dream and the visions you had in your head when you were in bed. Your Majesty, when you were in bed, you began thinking about what would take place in the future. And He who reveals secrets has revealed to you what will happen. Yet this secret has not been revealed to me because I am wiser than anyone living, but so that the meaning can be made known to your majesty. Then you can understand the thoughts of your own mind. Your majesty had a vision of a statue, very large, extremely bright. It stood in front of you. Its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its trunk and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you watched, a stone separated itself without any human hand. It struck the statue on its feet, made of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces, which became like the the, the chaff on a threshing floor in summer. And the wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the stone which had struck the statue grew into a huge mountain. It filled the whole earth. That is what you dreamt. Now we will give the king its interpretation. Your majesty, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory, so that wherever people, wild animals, or birds in the air live, he's handed them over to you. And he's enabled you to rule them all. You are the head of gold. But after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to you, then a third kingdom of bronze which will rule the whole world. The fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron. Iron can break anything into pieces, pulverize it and crush it. So just as iron can crush anything, this kingdom will break the other kingdoms into pieces and crush them. Finally, you saw the feet and the toes made partly of pottery clay, partly of iron. This will be a divided kingdom. 
Yet it will have some of the firmness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with clay from the ground. Just as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, this kingdom will be partly strong, but partly brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. That means that they will cement their alliances by intermarriages. But they won't stick together any more than iron blends with clay. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. It will break to pieces and consume all those kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. Like the stone you saw, which without human hands separated itself from the mountain and broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold... The great God has revealed to the king what will come about in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is reliable. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and he worshipped Daniel. He ordered that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. To Daniel, the king said, Your God is indeed the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you have been able to reveal the secret. The king promoted Daniel to a high rank. He gave him many rich gifts, made him governor of the entire province of Babel and ahead of all the sages of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in charge of the affairs of the province of Babel while Daniel remained in attendance on the king. Well, immediately, the opening verse of this chapter causes controversy as far as the modern school of Bible criticism is concerned. And once again, it involves placing this narrative in time. You see, verse 1 says that what is about to follow, that has Daniel at the center of the action, happened in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. These particular Bible scholars say that we're presented with a contradiction. Because in the previous chapter, Daniel is said to have gone to a three-year school that began upon his arrival in Babylon. Thus, both statements can't be correct, they say. Proving that the book of Daniel was fictitiously authored by at least two writers or that if the work is of a single writer, he was not only a poor historian but wasn't smart enough to make the two chapters agree with one another. There have been a number of approaches to try and reconcile this issue that, frankly for me, is a non-issue. Some scholars say that this is a matter of how a king's regnal years are counted, which happens in five different ways in the Old Testament. Others say that it was not in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, but rather it was the twelfth year that this occurred. And in fact, some ancient Bible manuscripts indeed say it was the twelfth year of Nebuchadnezzar, not the second Josephus offers that the date's meant to reflect the second year after Nebuchadnezzar sacked Egypt, and then there's lots of others. There's a much simpler answer to this that doesn't require a lot of reverse engineering. First of all, the way the Bible relates chronology to its readers is not the way it's done today, and of that there's no dispute. 
And the ancient literary Hebrew style is not the modern Western literary style, and we ought not expect it to be. Second of all, it is commonplace in the Bible to describe an event or a story from start to finish in summary form. And then in later paragraphs or chapters to return to some point in that overall time period and explain some particular event or another in greater detail. For example, I could take a few minutes to tell someone of my education background by giving an overview from kindergarten through graduate school. But then after that summary, I could go back to my high school days and tell the story about some event that happened then. I have a little doubt that's exactly what's happening here at the outset of Daniel chapter 2. See, so Daniel chapter 1 was merely an introductory historical overview. It brought Daniel to Babylon from his home in Judah, then put him into service of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Then we see a demonstration of Daniel's steadfast faith in Jehovah all during that time. It also explained that Daniel was sent to a Chaldean school for three years to learn the ways of Babylon. And finally, in the last verse, that Daniel served so loyally, so long, that he even found himself in the service of the king of Persia when the Medes and the Persians took over the empire from the Babylonians. Therefore, when we come to Daniel chapter 2, we're doing a very typical backtracking now to focus on a particular event that happened at a particular moment during this long time of Daniel's captivity. And it happened to be we're told, in Nebuchadnezzar's second year on the throne, however you want to count it. In fact, exactly which year this might have happened is largely unimportant to the story. Nonetheless, assuming the second year of Nebuchadnezzar is correct, this means that Daniel was probably still in Chaldean school. And his three years of education weren't yet completed. Sadly, I must keep reminding you, that the reason that the, that the modern Bible commentators of the higher criticism discipline, which is the majority of Bible commentators, take this unwarranted stab. They take this unwarranted stab at trying to find these supposed discrepancies in the book of Daniel. And they do it because they begin with this immovable worldview that there are no such things as the supernatural, miracles, or predictive prophecy. They simply don't exist. Therefore, Daniel can only be fiction. And they see their jobs as exposing this to the ignorant masses of Christians and Jews, and thus also being admired and accepted by the liberal academic elite. Well, the first three verses of this chapter are a preamble to the prophetic story. And they're written in Hebrew. It's at verse 4 when this story begins in earnest and it switches to Aramaic. The gist of the preamble is this. King Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by a series of dreams such that it disturbed his sleep. 
That is, he didn't just have one dream. He had several. They were all either the same dream or they were closely related. We have no idea over what period of time these dreams went on. Days, weeks, months, maybe. Finally, he became so full of anxiety over them that he determined they had to have important meaning. And so he just had to know what they meant and how it pertained to him and to his kingdom. Well, in biblical times, dreams and visions were a common way for God to speak to humans, Gentile or Jew. Kings took their dreams seriously since the matters that they dealt with affected entire nations. So King Nebuchadnezzar called for his kingdom's magicians and sorcerers and exorcists and astrologers to come to him. And then more or less working as a team, they were challenged to interpret the king's dreams. Now the Hebrew word that the complete Jewish Bible is translating into astrologers is Kasdim, which literally means Chaldeans. But I think the complete Jewish Bible is right in translating this as astrologers from the aspect that by now in the 6th century BC the term Chaldeans, Kasdim, was evolving. And more and more it meant professional stargazers who tried to ascertain the future by charting the heavenly bodies. So in verse 4, as we have this array of Babylonian seers standing before the king, we are explicitly told that they began to speak to the king in Aramaic. Why would we be told that? What difference does it make? Because Akkadian was the language of the elite. But for some reason they chose to spoke Aramaic. Did the king perhaps not know Akkadian? And so not surprisingly, it's at this very point that the biblical text ceases to be written in Hebrew, begins to be written in Aramaic, the common everyday language of the Babylonians. And now, for the next 20 verses, comes a life and death wrestling match between King Nebuchadnezzar and his flock of seers who represents all the known professions of the magical arts of that day. The king, of course, wants his dream dream interpreted, but in an unprecedented demand. He insists that before they tell him the meaning of his dream, they're to tell him the substance and the content of his dream. In fact, if they don't first tell him what it is that he dreamed, he's going to have them torn limb from limb and their homes will be reduced to rubble. On the other hand, if they're able to tell him his dream and interpret it, they'll receive wonderful rewards. You know, these guys know they're in trouble. They are in trouble here. Up to now, they could just pretty much make up anything they wanted to about what a dream means. Agree on it and then go tell the king. And in fact, one gets the distinct feeling that King Nebuchadnezzar's been down this path before. And he's become suspicious. He's had a dream. He tells them the dream. The seers interpret it. And it doesn't turn out like they say. Or they use it maybe for flattery in hopes of personal gain. His solution? 
hey, these guys are so smart, so spiritual, so connected to the supernatural realm that they can interpret my dreams. They ought to be able to tell me the dream itself. In fact, verses 8 and 9 has Nebuchadnezzar telling the seers, I see you're only trying to gain time because you see that I've decided that if you don't tell me the dream, there's only one sentence passed on all of you. So you've conspired to mislead me with lies in the hope that time will change things. Now just tell me the dream. That'll convince me that you'll also be able to give me its correct interpretation. The seers keep pleading for the king to tell him his dream. And he says, uh-uh, not going to do it. But then in verse 11, we have a startling admission by the seer's spokesman. It's just not possible for a human being to know another human being's dream. Only the gods can do that, and gods don't live with humans. In other words, the seers admit they have no means to know the king's dream. Well, that did it. The king flew into a rage. He condemned all the seers of Babylon to death. He decided that they were, as a group, a bunch of phonies. He was right. This did not mean now that all the magicians and sorcerers and astrologers and the like throughout the whole Babylon... Babylonian Empire were to die. Rather, just those that lived in the city of Babylon, the king's capital, where his palace was located. But it did indeed mean that all seers who were in the city were to be slain without distinction for their particular art form and whether they were involved in this debacle or not. Such was the power and prerogative of the ancient Oriental kings. And Nebuchadnezzar's edict of death for an entire class of people to satisfy his outrage was not an unusual practice in those days. But it turns out that the decrees to be carried out so thoroughly that even these Jewish boys, including Daniel, are to be slain as well. And this shows us that the idea of higher education in Babylon was primarily religious education. And Babylon's religion involved all of these black arts professionals who were called before Nebuchadnezzar and who now stand as dead men walking. These black arts were at the heart of what Daniel and his companions, companions were to become experts in. Therefore, even though it seems to be that not enough time has passed that Daniel has even graduated from his Chaldean schooling, it was enough for him to be included as among the condemned wise men. Well, apparently some time passed from the death sentence pronouncement to when it would be carried out. In the interim, Daniel, of course, was informed of his fate... And as Aryok broke the news to him, Daniel carefully and respectfully said he thought it reasonable to at least be told what had so upset the king so as to bring on this kind of a harsh response. And Aryok, the king's chief bodyguard, who had been tasked to carry out the executions, told Daniel what the issue was, and Daniel apparently thought he could find out the answers the king sought if he could just speak with the king. He convinced Aryok to present him to the king, which no doubt involved some measure of trust in Daniel 
on Oroch's part. You don't march people in before the king just because they want an audience. Now I should note here that neither the king nor Ariok were so in love with killing and death so as to forget that the goal was not mass executions but rather to find somebody that the king could trust to interpret this series of dreams that he instinctively knew were important. The executions weren't so much punishment as it was just getting rid of a bunch of false seers who had obviously been lying and deceiving the king when they used to interpret his dreams and visions. You know, we saw the God of Israel order essentially the same thing concerning false prophets of Israel. Death to them all. Daniel told the king if he would just grant him some time he would be able to tell him his dream and its interpretation. Well apparently the king granted it. Daniel went back to his three Jewish friends who were going to suffer the same fate as all the other Chaldeans and he told them that they should consult Yehovah to see if he would give them the answer to the dream and thus save their lives and the lives of the Babylonian seers. Well verse 19 says that God answered their petition and he gave to Daniel the revelation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We're told that the secret came in a night vision. A vision of the night isn't necessarily a dream. Since the word dream in Aramaic is chalem, and the word vision is chazev, we can know that these are two different experiences. The king had a dream as he slept, but Daniel was informed of the substance of the dream and what it meant by means of a vision while he was fully awake. It's only that this vision occurred at nighttime. Daniel's response was most appropriate. A prayer of thanksgiving to God. And I find the nature of the prayer quite interesting. In that it essentially praises Jehovah's attributes and his inherent nature. Or another way to think of it is that it defines God's identity. And because Daniel and others from Judah are now in exile in Babylon, identity becomes a core issue for them. We've already seen that Nebuchadnezzar sought to change the identities of those Jewish captives that he brought to Babylon. And especially of those who he intended on being in service to him. Now in Babylon, Daniel reiterates in prayer who God is and that his own identity is in Jehovah. Now I've taught you on numerous occasions that it's quite a challenge today to sort out just who God is. For going on two decades we've seen this growing influence of the Muslims throughout the world and it has even affected Christian thinking about God whose name is called Jehovah and yet the Muslims call their God Allah. So it's become vogue, especially among Christian missionaries, to say that regardless of what name Islam calls God, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all worship the same God. Well, I reject that on the strongest possible terms. 
Because as we're shown throughout the Scriptures, and now here with Daniel's prayer of thanksgiving, God can be known to humans in only two ways. His name and His attributes. His name and His attributes. And let me tell you, as one who's read the Koran, the attributes of the God of the Koran, that the Muslims worship are very different on a number of levels than the attributes of the God of the Bible that Jews and Christians worship. They are not the same God. In verse 20, Daniel says that Jehovah's chief attribute is He's eternal. And that true wisdom and power come from God alone. In verse 21, God causes the seasons to change and He is the master of time itself. It's only by the Lord's permission that kings, Gentile or Hebrew, ascend thrones and are removed from thrones. In verse 22, it is the one and only Lord who reveals things that are otherwise unknowable by humans. Through revelation, He gives otherwise secret and hidden things to the wise men of this world. And verse 23, the issue of identity once again arises as Daniel says that God, Jehovah, is the God of Daniel's ancestors. Daniel's Hebrew ancestors. And that in his sovereignty, the Lord has revealed to Daniel the king's dream and what it means. So as we close this week, let it be with the knowledge that it was the God of Israel who put those dreams into Nebuchadnezzar's mind. Thus it is only the God of Israel who can reveal their true meaning. And next week, we will begin a close examination of that frightening statue made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron whose image has been the haunting subject of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams.